Well, to start, I, I want to give just a brief Mother's Day history lesson uh, to you and some of the context of why we celebrate Mother's Day. The Mother's Day began was begun by a woman named Anna Jarvis. She started the campaign in 1905, the year that her own mother died, and she wanted to have a recognized holiday in the United States to honor mothers, who, in her words, this is the person who has done more for you than anyone in the world, who's given you life, the instrumental means. And so, in 1908, the U.S. Congress uh, considered this, but rejected her proposal to have a day set aside for a Mother's Day holiday. And they thought this would create a slippery slope. And before long, you'd have <coughs> Mother-in-Law's Day, uh, which is just unthinkable, right? <coughs> uh, but they jokingly kind of pushed it aside. Um, but a few years later, it was 1914, President Woodrow Wilson uh, issued a proclamation setting aside the second Sunday in May as a holiday that we know now as Mother's Day. Now, although Anna Jarvis was successful in uh, founding Mother's Day, she... she soon became resentful of what this holiday had become. And she grew angry that companies were seeking to profit from this holiday. And so after Hallmark and other companies started selling Mother's Day cards, she became very upset at the commercialization of Mother's Day and and even protested to Congress, asking them to rescind it. And so she said the holiday was, was to be about sentiment, not profit. That she wanted people to appreciate and honor their mothers by writing you know, personal uh, handwritten letters expressing their gratitude to moms, not buying gifts or pre-made cards. And so she went so far as to organize boycotts and threaten lawsuits to, stop, to try and stop this commercialization. She she, this just cracks me up. She crashed a candy makers convention in Philadelphia in 1923 in protest. Later that year, she was arrested for disturbing the peace when she protested the selling of carnations in connection to Mother's Day. So what, what was it that got her so worked up about this? Was this she saw that simple purpose of the holiday that she was passionate to see come into place, she saw it being polluted and being hijacked by these companies. Well, here's the connection to Genesis 5. In Genesis 5, this chapter opens with this restatement of God's simple purpose for making man. And this is, this is how it begins. Men and women were made to bear God's image and likeness. They're made for this unhindered, intimate fellowship with God. To, to implicitly trust Him and His goodness. To walk with Him in, in, in closeness, without shame. To subdue the creation that God made as His vice-regents. To, to multiply, fill the earth with other worshipers of God. This was the purpose, but that simple purpose was hijacked. It was polluted. It was, it was corrupted by sin. And we've been seeing that unfold in, in Genesis here. And so the serpent sought to undermine God's good and perfect purpose for man, and he was successful. And so the first man and woman, they're, 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 the first one's made, they take the bait and they swallow the hook of the temptation. And, 
And, we, and the whole world fell with Him. And the simple purpose of living for the glory of God by enjoying God's presence was shattered. And what has God been doing ever since? He's, he's started a campaign to get us back to this simple purpose. This is what is the story of Genesis unfolding here. Now, side note, please do not quote me later. If you haven't got your mother anything for Mother's Day, don't like try to wimp out now and say, oh, I, you know, Justin said, the commercialization of Mother's Day. That's not my point. Write the note, that's good. Give the gift too, that's also good. And so don't do the little coupon for a hug thing or something like that. Unless you're three, uh, that's fine. Well, how do you preach a genealogy like this here in Genesis 5? How, how do you do that on Mother's Day? Or maybe more importantly, why would you do this on Mother's Day? <laughs> uh, um, this guy with this strange name that's hard to pronounce followed this guy with a strange name that's hard to pronounce, and he died. Repeat, repeat, repeat. But this mournful refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, it, it, it's, it's not the only message of Genesis 5. There is this resounding note of hope that comes through this chapter and this genealogy. There's more going on here than meets the eye. A lot more. So remember a few months ago when we started uh, the book of Genesis, I know you remember, because you remember everything that we say from this pulpit, right? Um, we said Genesis is divided into these ten sections, and there's a word in the Hebrew, we, we used it, the toledot. It just, it's, uh, it's the Hebrew word for the way it's translated in English, these are the generations of. And so these ten toledots, ten uh, uses of that word that break up this whole book of Genesis into these ten sections. That's the structure of the book. So the first one we saw was back in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And so most of these will be generations of people, but the very first one, it's, it's, it's everything God made. And so that section concluded at the end of chapter 4. And now we come to the second of these Toledotes in 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And this section is going to run through chapter 6, verse 8. We'll look at that next week. And then we'll have a new, the third one in, in 6.9. And so in chapter 5, we have these ten generations that are given from Adam to Noah, covering about uh, a thousand years of, of history. Uh, um, and so and what this is here for is, is to show that God is keeping His pro- promise He's keeping His promise to preserve the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. What God promised in Genesis 3.15, God is keeping His promise to do that. And so, genealogies are so important. And this is, this is why the, this, this expression, it makes up the structure of the book. You think again, here's Israel wandering in the wilderness as this is the original hearers of, of Genesis. And there they are. And they need to see their connectedness to this. They need to see themselves in this story. They need to see God's unbroken purpose and promise and plan being worked out. It's not, they're not just there um, because you know, God's kind of fallen asleep or something. like. No, this is His plan. And we need to see ourselves in this line too. We're, we're in this. And so we want to see that. Now, what do we do normally when we get to genealogies? If you're, be honest, if you're reading through your, your, your Bible and you get to a genealogy, how many of you skip them? Alright, the rest of you are liars, and there will be confession time later. Um, you, know, you at least skim them, and don't tell me you read every name and every date. Alright, um, you can fess up later. 
But we, we skip them when we read through books of the Bible. And sometimes when we preach through books of the Bible, it's, it's easy to kind of pass over them. Or we do other funny things when we get to genealogies. So one of the things that we do, we, we kind of gloss over most of the names. And then there are those, those couple that stand out. And we do these, try to do these in-depth character studies on them. And that's what, kind of how we preach through genealogy. So here in Genesis 5, we, we talk about Enoch. Uh, why do we talk about Enoch? Because he's the only one, in, as we read through here, that it did not say, and, and he died. And so that's significant, and we're going to see the significance of that. So he walked with God, didn't taste death, but because God just took him. Now, I'll admit, that's pretty juicy for a preacher. And so you're, 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 your mind's going, what, what was that like? And what we want to go there. And so a lot of sermons on Genesis 5, they just... They just focus in on Enoch and, and what it means to walk with God. That's how a lot of us preach. Are you walking closely with God so that God could take you if He wanted to? Now, I've heard sermons like that. That is not what Genesis 5 is about. Let me just go ahead and dispel that right now. Or maybe we talk about Methuselah. Why do we talk about Methuselah? Because he's got such a cool name. Uh, so if you're looking for baby names, there's one for you. His, his, name, his name means uh, praise uh, praise of God. That's a good name. And so, but we t- why do we talk about him? Because we like Bible trivia. And Methuselah is the oldest guy uh, recorded as living in the Old Testament. 969 years. Lord have mercy. What? I wouldn't even want that on anybody. But 969 years. So we talk about old Methuselah, what his name means, how long he lived. And generally, when, when we do that, the, the sermon becomes kind of around the the earth and uh, before the flood and what the condition of the world was like pre-flood. And so what was the air like? What was the water like? What was nutrition like? What were our bodies like? And all of those kinds of questions. So we talk about vapor canopies and all, all of that. And those things are interesting. Those things are not bad things to think about or to talk about. But that's not the point of Genesis 5. We're not told any of that. And so all that said... Let me, let, me do, let me touch on that before we get to the main trail. And, and I'm, here I am contradicting myself. It may seem like that. But what do we do with these, the issue of these ages? I, I think I, I, the, these people make the oldest folks we've ever known look like spring chickens. I mean, in Genesis 5, 200 is the new 20. Uh, I mean, this is, these ages are remarkable. And, and let me just say, I take these ages to be real ages. I really do think Methuselah lived to see his 969th birthday. Um, so why, why did they live so long? Well, it's not the point to explain all of this, but, but I, I do think it's worth saying something because this is one of those places where it's very common for people to try to poke holes in Christianity and some places where Christians get tripped up and you're pressed on this. Just, ah, I, don't, I can't explain that. That sounds kind of crazy that people could live that long. We, we know that's not possible. And so we, 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 trip, we get tripped up here. Just a couple things. I'm not going to elaborate on this first one. Clearly, I, I think it's safe to say, the climate conditions after the fall and before the flood were, were more conducive to long life. And so we, we can't know exactly what that was like, but it was different. And so after the flood, climate conditions, they're not as conducive to long life. And so if you've got questions, talk to Susanna. She can answer all of your questions. She's like a resident expert on these things, and, and she, she, she really can be helpful to you if you're wanting to think through that. Our family, we're going up to the uh, Creation Museum and the Ark uh, uh, thing uh, in a couple weeks, 
And so I know that they're going to have, you know, un- help trying to help people understand what that might have been like. Providentially, I'm going to go up there and see the, you know, the reproduction of the ark, and then I'm going to come back and preach on Noah and the flood. And so that's, uh, that's God's good providence. So that's, that's one thing. Second, listen, this, the effects of sin, the effects of sin on the human race had not yet reached their full potential. And so as the, as the consequences of the fall are being worked out in humanity and in the world, life begins to get shorter. And so just an illustration, it's, suppose you have this five-gallon bucket of water and you, you drop some dye into that water. Well, the dye just kind of stays together at first and it's, you know, it starts to uh, disseminate, but, but it only affects part of the water initially. But as over time, and as you stir it around and shake it up, then, then all of that water, every molecule of water there, is, is affected by that dye. And, and so in a sense, what, that's what happened as sin spread and began to permeate uh, more and more of human life and touch on more aspects of life in the world. Third, it's just the providence of God. And I think this is the, the safest way to answer this. This was His wise design. It allowed for a number of things. It allowed for the rapid multiplication of, of the human race. Starting the, the whole world with two people. And we have 7.7 billion people. Now it really got down to eight. For, and, then it, and then it grew again. But there's this, there, there has to be fast growth and multiplication. And so the longer life cycles, they allowed for this. And, and people having loads of children over hundreds of years. We're not told how many, but they had many more sons and daughters, the text says. And, and so over these first ten, or ten generations, you could have easily gotten to millions of people um, in, in short time because of the extent of the life cycles. And so after the flood even, we, we know that the life cycles remain long for, for at least a, a couple generations. And then they, then they dropped off quickly, but it allowed again for the for population to swell. Um, it also allowed, in God's providence, for the cultivation of, of knowledge, arts, and sciences. And so you just imagine what could be done with three or four hundred more years to your life. Uh, d- take Da Vinci, for instance. I mean, just, we're greatly impacted by his work, and, and, and he just lived 67 years. But what ima- imagine if he lived 700 more. Imagine if Einstein lived to be 900. Just applying himself and his God-given mind and abilities over over hundreds of years, or or George Washington Carver and the possible advances in agriculture that we could see, or Mike Hutzel and in fiber optics, you know, I mean, these brilliant minds, and so uh, or in the arts, I mean, Mozart, guy lived to be what thirty-five. Can you wrap your mind around? Uh, the kind of music that he would have created if he lived to be 835. And so these folks, they're, they're living 800, 900 years. Think of all the advances in hunting and farming and agriculture and construction and community organization, city building, and all that took place. They're not dumb Neanderthals. These are, these are minds that were active and growing. It's just... It's different. You think of the way things work today. And so you, you, we have these great breakthroughs in technology, but what, how does that happen? You have people that apply themselves, brilliant people that apply themselves for 40, 50 years, and, and, and they're, they're working, and they make this little bit of progress in some area, and then they, do the, they write their research out, and then the next person kind of picks up where they left, takes it a little bit further. And, and then eventually we have these big breakthroughs in technology or engineering, 
medicine and whatever, but just imagine, again, hundreds of years. And then working together, collaborating together with other people who are living hundreds of years. All right, last thing. But you say, it, it, in God's providence, it allowed for the preservation of truth. Of, of the faith, we could even say. So think, of, think about your life. Some of you were not raised with, with parents who were believers. And, and this has been something you've worked through. You had little to no exposure to the gospel early on in your life. But maybe you research your genealogy. Maybe you start talking with grandparents and great-grandparents. And, and you find out you had these relatives a few generations before who were godly. Maybe missionaries, pastors, and, and, and hymn writers, or whatever they are. These godly saints. And what's your first thought? Oh, I wish I could, I wish I could, could, could have met my great-great-great-grandparents. This godly couple. But somewhere along the way, that, that legacy was broken, and then, and then you came along. And, and so as, I, as you do the math here in Genesis 5, and I, I realize we've got to be careful because these genealogies, there may, be gener- there may be people that are skipped. That's not uncommon in biblical genealogy. So when he says he begat or he, he bore a son, it could be a son or grandson. But I'm just saying, if you, if you take this, uh, even in the kind of strict way, by the time Lamech is born, Adam's about 774 years old. Everybody other than Noah would have had a minimum of 150 years with him, with Adam. The very first person made by the hand of God out of the dust of the earth. And so, so with the, the man who walked with God in the cool of day, the, the, the probably with Eve, we're not told how long she lived, but the mother of all. And so here they could talk with Adam and Eve. E, e, Enoch, Enoch probably knew Adam in his prime. When, whatever that is when you live hundreds of years, I don't know. But he was kind of right there in the middle. So, so the first nine generations after Adam, potentially, they're not just hearing about what Adam did. They're not hearing third hand about the fall or sixth hand or eighth hand. This is not like the telephone game where all of, it gets kind of distorted and confused. This is not, uh, they're not just hearing these stories and fables, you know, preserved through oral means. They had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Adam and Eve themselves. And so what did that allow for the, as the, as the human, humanities growing and spreading? And, and so for at least those reasons, there were these long lifespans. Alright, back to the main trail. What's the point of Genesis 5? Again, it's God's faithfulness to preserve His promise in Genesis 3.15 that we looked at. So it's showing this unbroken link between Adam and Noah. And later we're going to see this link from Noah to Abraham, the fifth Toledot. And then eventually we're going to get to the New Testament. We're going to see this link all the way from Adam to Jesus Christ. And God's the single author of Scripture, the single divine author, and He's writing this story, and this is how it's, it's beginning, and this is where it begins. But He's showing this unbroken link. It's about the promise of God being preserved by His sovereign grace. And so let's see, four statements about this, and then we'll come to the table, eat and drink, and just revel in the fulfillment of these things. And so the first thing we'll say is this, God preserves His promise in the midst of rampant corruption. In the rampant corruption, depravity, social, moral decay. So we remember chapters 3 and 4 of Genesis, it, it, it just sent shockwaves through creation. 
And the fabric of God's good and purposeful and beautiful original creation is just ripped apart by sin. Last week we, we saw the expression of this, and so we, we saw Adam and Eve's exile from the garden, and all that was lost and broken there, and death enters the world. But last week, Adam and Eve's first son, Cain, murders his, their second son, Abel. And Cain's cursed by God, and he's sent away as this outcast. And, and so, the end of Genesis 4, it shows this lineage of, of Cain. It's a, it's a record of, of just human degeneration. Civilization is, is growing and advancing rapidly, but at the same time, it's decaying and imploding. There's this there technological advances and exponential evil within that Cain, that line of Cain. And so the pictures, it's dark and bleak. Humanity is just this wicked mess. And it looks like God's promise that He made is completely unraveling. But it is not. It is not. Chapter 4, it closed with this, this subtle stream of light. We saw this last week. This, this hope. There, there's this new line that, um, that emerges from the rubble of fallen humanity. And so God promised an offspring from Eve who would make things right again, who would crush the head of the serpent, banish sin and death forever. And, and with the birth of Seth at the end of chapter 4, that promise is still alive. It's not gone. It's not, it's not defeated. In fact, some from his line begin calling upon the name of the Lord. They're, they're, God, is, God is preserving His promise. He's preserving a people for Himself. He's, he's, he, even in a time of gross wickedness and, and extreme depravity, he's, he's faithful. He's preserving His promise. And that becomes even clearer than when we get to chapter 5. Again, the chapter opens with this restatement of Genesis 1.27 when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female He created them and He blessed them and He named them man when they were created. Now what is that repeated for? It's not been that long. We can remember what this statement. For this reason, the fall of Adam and Eve the, and, and the wreckage that it produced, it did not erase the image of God in human beings. It, it did not. Though marred and distorted and corrupted by sin, absolutely, the image of God remains in people. And this image bearing, it doesn't just die with Adam and Eve. It's not like they're made in the image of God and the next generation is gone. Notice verse 3 again. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam became a father of a son in his own likeness. And in what likeness is that? Well, in Adam's. And Adam bore the likeness of God himself. So right out of the gate, the image of God is transferred through procreation. The sin nature is passed down too, absolutely. Every human being is born a sinner. But, but also, every human being is an image bearer of God. And it goes on. It hasn't stopped from generation to generation. And so now we have about 7.7 billion image bearers alive today on planet Earth. And it's over 6,000 languages, and over 1,000 you know, groups of people. And, and so without exception, every single one of them bears God's likeness and image. And the fall corrupts it but it does not destroy it. And therefore, people that God has made are still redeemable. 
And this is, again, this is hope that's running through here. Um, and, and no matter how dark, no matter how degenerate uh, the, the, the culture became in, in that day and in any day, God's purpose is preserved by His grace. So you can see God's, you can see this here. Chapter 5, it's not about how wonderful man is. And, and how, how he is to be faithful to God. That's not the point of chapter 5. It's not a celebration of human heroes. It's about God and His unstoppable commitment to fulfill every promise of His Word. We sang this. It's, it, even in the midst of a world that opposes His purposes. And so what, what comfort and encouragement this should give us. I mean, talk to you mothers. I know... This is a struggle. You, you, you're watching your children growing up in a world that seems so increasingly hostile to, to God and His ways. Don't think for a second that God is losing ground. He's not giving any up. He is, he is preserving His promise. And He is faithful. His purposes go on. His people are preserved. His promises remain intact no matter how rapidly the culture may seem to deteriorate. And, and what is this? Is just it frees us, it frees us to see again the goodness of of God even in the midst of darkness. We see that every person we come in contact with is an image bearer of God. It guards us from this kind of cloister mentality where we think we've got to withdraw, and, and because that we have this in common with every single person. We're all. It's not like there's bad people out there, good people here. That's not it at all. It, it, the, 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 the other kids that your kids go to school with, they're, they're, the other soccer parents, that's uh, not like there's this distinction. They are, they are image bearers of God, fallen, corrupted image bearers of God who are redeemable by God's grace. And so are we. And so it frees us to love and to move out a mission. Second, God preserves His promise in spite of the rhythm of fallen humanity. He preserves His promise in spite of the rhythm of fallen humanity. So there's this rhythmic pattern throughout this genealogy and it's broken only twice with Enoch and Noah. So ten paragraphs, ten generations, and you have this pattern in each of these paragraphs. The name, the age, uh, additional years after the birth of a son, acknowledgement of other children, total lifespan, and then this refrain, and he died. And he died. Now, Forget the ages for a minute. That's not what's important. That's not the point. The fact is, he died. He died. It's showing the unflinching justice of God. That this is the real result of sin. That the sentence of the fall has now been fully carried out and executed by God. I don't know what, the, again, I don't know what these people look like when they're 900 years old. I don't want to know. But here's the important thing. Here's Adam, he's lived almost a millennium, but he comes to the point where he breathes his last breath and he dies. And the fullness of the curse has come to fruition. In the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. He's already separated from God, there's spiritual death, but now it comes to fruition, there's physical death. The fact that God gave him 930 years is nothing but unmitigated grace. That's all it is. And think about... Think about those who were 600, 600, 700 years uh, old, still hanging out with Adam. It would be tempting to think, okay, maybe death is just a possibility. Maybe it's not a certainty. 
I mean, look how long we're living. I know, no doubt they saw people die that didn't live that long, but and you had people like Abel and was killed by his brother Cain. Okay, sure. Um, so that we can understand that, that we could die and, you know, something like murder. But, yeah, but do we really believe every person must die? The first person that was created has lived almost a thousand years. He's not dead. But, yes, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. No matter how many years you get, you will die. Unless the Lord returns first. And we say, come Lord Jesus. But it's inevitable. We will, we will all die. It's a sweet thought on Mother's Day, I know. I mean, this is the truth that we find later in the New Testament. Romans 5.12 Sin entered this world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all, all people because all sinned in Adam. Or stated very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15.22 In Adam, all die. Sin brings death. This is something every one of us needs to come to grips with, no matter whether you're in the what's called the prime of life or whether you're on your sort of last lap. Uh, you're going to die. The Bible says it's been appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So whether you're 80 or whether you're 8, in light of eternity, it's a blip on the screen. Or whether you're 800. And I, I mean, I think about what it may mean, what it will mean for me to die. I mean, I remember... Uh, standing at my mother's bed watching her die. And I think about, it could be that my kids are standing by my bed watching me die. And, and, and And on and on it goes, this terrible rhythmic beat. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And you won't escape it. You can eat all the kale you want to eat. Not that anybody wants to eat it. Drink all the kombucha that you can handle. Um... Go to the gym, run marathons, do yoga, do all that stuff. Those things are good, fine, they're helpful, they can be part of stewardship of our bodies. But, but the, in, the, in the end, Paul says, they're of little profit. They're of little profit. Some of you, some of you understand this because you're getting older. Those aches, the pains, the soreness, the sickness, they, they don't let you forget this reality. Others of you, you kind of have this feeling like you're going to go on forever. And you're young, you're, you're healthy, you're robust. Young people die too. We know this pain so real. If you're not trusting in Christ as your Savior, don't wait. We just say that. And, and as parents, if you have children, pray for their salvation. And make it a priority to point them to Christ. Not because you can, can will them to salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. This is why we're beseeching the Lord. This is grace. That's going to be the next point. But what I want you to see in Genesis 5 is in spite of judgment and death and this rhythm of, of, of life and death, God preserves His promise. It's not thwarted. Even while sin and death abound here on earth, He is preserving the seed of the woman who will destroy both. Third, God preserves His promise on the basis of covenant grace, not merit. And so there's this rhythmic pattern through Genesis 5, and then there's this one guy that stands out. Pazzini, you nailed the reading because it, it, was, it was very helpful to see this, this really separated. And the number seven on the list, Enoch. Verse 21 again, when Enoch had lived 65 years. I mean, he's young. You imagine fathering a child at 65, but he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were... 365 years. Enoch walked with God 
and he was not, for God took him. Now, there could have been much more detail here. He walked with God. What does that mean? (laughs) Tell us about his life, and we don't know exactly. I mean, it echoes life in the garden before the fall, but what was it like to walk with God after the fall? What was intimacy and closeness and fellowship of walking with God like? But the writer of Genesis, Moses, doesn't give us these details. He doesn't tell us what that was like. He's not writing to help us understand how we too can walk with God like Enoch. It's not the point. What's important about Enoch is that he's a link between Adam and Noah and ultimately Christ. That's why he's here. Now, we'll learn something about Enoch theologically in just a moment, but but think about this. You, You may be tempted to think, well, Enoch walked with God. That's how he got to be a son of promise in this line. And so God looked at him and said, Ah, here's one who's walking with me, therefore I'll make him the next link in the chain. And then after him, okay, this one's walking with me, so he gets to be the next link in the chain. No, it's not it. Not at all. Because God's promise, it's not preserved on the basis of human merit, but of covenant grace. So Enoch's walk with God isn't something that makes us applaud him and say, Man, I want to be like Enoch. I mean, great, that's, but that's His grace. It's something that makes us praise and applaud God and, and, and for, for His sovereign grace in preserving His promise to us. There was nothing innate in Enoch. There was nothing special about him that set him apart. It was His grace alone. And so look at the genealogies of Jesus and the Gospel accounts. And there are some people in those lists that are just scoundrels. It's, it's, you don't earn your way into being a son or daughter of promise. It's the promise of God. It's not the performance of man that puts Enoch or anybody in this list. It's sovereign grace. So why did, why did God choose these sons? I mean, they had many other sons and daughters. Now, why not one of the others? Was it on account of their impeccable record of such good deeds and how wonderful the people they were? No, it's on the basis of sovereign covenant grace. And we see other examples of this in Scripture. Later we'll see God choose Isaac instead of Ishmael. Ishmael's the firstborn. Why? Because God chose to establish His covenant with Isaac simply as an everlasting covenant for His offspring after Him. And there was nothing Isaac could have done. He was, he was still in utero. He hadn't done anything good, deserving of that. No, it's not about merit. It's about covenant. Isaac was born the son of the promise because God said so, not because he was worthy of it. Jacob and Esau, I know the youth are looking in Romans 9, and we'll see, you see in Genesis 25, but Jacob is the one that I loved. We, I know, we, we, we see God's choice of Israel over, over other nations. I chose you not because of what you do, because of how special you are and how good you are. I chose you because of the promise I made to your forefathers. Not because they're strong, no, they're in fact very weak. It's just it's not because they're perfect people. It's because it's because of his grace. So in Genesis five, these individuals, including Enoch, are, are not there because they earn the right to be there. Most of them we don't know anything about. It's not like this who's who's list of of heroes of the Old Testament. They're there because God is working out His plan and He determined to use them in the process. And praise God for a sovereign grace, brothers and sisters. I mean. I know we can choke on it at times when we start thinking about all the what-ifs of sovereignty and free will and all these questions that can, we can trip on, but if it were not for God's sovereign grace, not one of us would be saved. 
were it not for sovereign grace, parenting mothers and fathers would be hopeless. It would be so despairing because there would be no chance. Fourth and finally, God preserves His promise until the ultimate Son of promise conquers the curse and death and brings life and rest. He brings life and rest. So the the two exceptions to the pattern, and He died, again, they are intended to make us take notice. One of those exceptions is Enoch. There's, There's no gravestone for Enoch anywhere. His bones aren't decaying in some grave anywhere on earth. Why? Because he was not, for God took him. Again, what that was like, I have no idea. If it was like Elijah and there was a chariot of fire, or if he was it's kind of like beam me up, Scotty, and he just dissolved. I don't know what happened. He was not, God took him. And how everybody knew that, what's important is the theological meaning of this. By God's grace, Enoch defied the curse. He escaped death. In other words, for Enoch, life was the last word, not death. Unlike everybody else. Through this, God's, God's thundering this reminder that I am the God who really does save from death, saves from the curse, saves from the consequences of sin and the penalty of sin. I am the one. And so, so again, you get it even in the New Testament, it looks back in Hebrews 11, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. So Enoch's this standing pledge, even for the believer, he's a standing pledge of death's defeat. Enoch is this reminder that we don't have to live under the fear of death, and under the grip of death. God is over that. He is the giver of life and the preserver of life and the, and the one who's, who, will, who will, in their case, and who has conquered death for us. Hebrews 2, verse 14, Therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He Himself likewise partook of the same things, Christ, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, crush the head of the serpent, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is, this is what this is pointing to. We'll come back to that. The other notable exception to this pattern in Genesis 5, it comes at the very end. And so we saw a, a, a Lemech in, in uh, Cain's line last week, and he was this violent, perverse, arrogant man. He, he epitomized that Cainite line. The Lemech in Seth's line is not remembered for his sins, but for his longings. Notice that again in Genesis 5, verse 28 following there. And so he, he longed to see relief from the curse and the fall. He, he, so he named his son uh, Noah, which means rest. Rest. He longed to see the rest of God. Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He's going to reverse the curse. Remember how we said that Eve thought, uh, may have thought that Cain was, was God's answer to the promise that he's going to send an offspring who's going to crush the head of the serpent. She may have thought that was going to be Cain. Perhaps Lamech thinks Noah's the one. Now, 
the, the, the one who's going to bring relief from the curse and rest and, and, and from this. And so the naming of a son reflects this longing for Redeemer. It reflects his, his faith in, in God's promise of Genesis 3.15. Of course, he's not completely right because the son of the promise will, will come later and he will say to us, take my yoke upon you for I will give you rest. Jesus is the one that this is pointing to. But He's not completely wrong either. I mean, Noah is a son of the promise and, and He will be a means of deliverance and rest. Which is not in the way Lamech is thinking. So Satan's going to do everything he can to destroy this line. It's going to get down to just eight people on the ark. But God will use Noah to bring salvation to the line of Seth. To preserve the promise of God. He will be used to bring salvation through judgment. And he'll be used to, to be a, the head of a, of a new humanity, in a sense, the, a new Adam. Noah would be the savior, little s, uh, of his family and of his line from the judgment of the flood. But his life is really there to point to a greater savior. That's why he's there. He's a type of Christ, we say. Not like He's one type of Christ, Jesus is another type. No, He's a type that He's this, he's this foreshadowing of Christ. And that becomes clear in First and Second Peter in, in, in the New Testament. Noah is a son of promise. Christ is the ultimate son of promise. Christ is the one who can and will actually save us from the judgment that's to come. And just like Noah uh, was used to bring salvation through judgment, Christ will bring salvation from judgment through judgment. Him bearing the curse in our place. Christ will be the head of a new redeemed people. The second Adam. And so when you get to the New Testament Gospel accounts, what do we, what do we find? How do they, two of them begin anyway? With genealogies. You have Matthew and he's connecting Jesus with whom? With David. He's the, he's the king. He's, he's, he's demonstrating Jesus is a son of promise as it relates to the throne, to Israel. And so he's, he's the king. He's the, of the line of David. And then you go to Luke's genealogy. He goes farther back to, from, from David. He goes all the way back to Adam. All the way back to Adam. It's, it's incredible. What's Luke saying by doing that? He's saying there was this gospel promise made in the beginning back in Genesis 3. That proto-gospel that a deliverer would come and he would crush the head of the adversary. And all along the way, after this promise was made, there were these signs as God raised up deliverers. And and it would say, I'm still God, my promise is still real. And he would raise up Noah and he would be this deliverer from the flood and from that judgment. And what's God saying through that? I'm still God, my promise is still real. And he raised up Moses who would bring his people out of slavery in, in Egypt. And what's that saying? God's saying, I'm still God. My promise is still intact. And so when we read the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus is superior though to everyone who came before him. Why? Because they're types, they're shadows. But there is one ultimate son of promise. And his name is Jesus. And every other son of promise is foreshadowing. It's pointing to the ultimate son of promise. This is how Genesis 5 fits into that big single storyline of the Bible that God has written for us. So breath by breath, baby by baby, generation by generation, God is saying, I will preserve 
my promise. And it will, it will come to fruition when the Savior comes into this world. And the Savior will not just protect us from the storm of God's wrath, but this one will come actually and bear it in His own body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 through 11 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And so this table is set before us now, and we're going to sing in just a moment, and we're going to eat and drink together. And so this is for moms and for all of us who are in Christ. It's here to, it's here to speak a better word than the blood of Abel. It's here to speak of a better deliverance than the deliverance of Noah. It points, us, it points us away from ourselves. It points us outside of ourselves. I know, I know it's, e- it's easy to turn in on ourselves and we, we think about our struggles and our sins and our guilt and our shame and our regrets and our hurts and our sorrows. And, 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 I, and this table, it doesn't minimize any of those things, but it's drawing us to Jesus and to see those things, those real, real struggles, temptations, sins, real past, see those things through the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. It's drawing us to Him. See it through the lens of the Gospel. It reminds moms and the rest of us that our ultimate identity is vertically oriented. It's in Christ. It's not what you've done, good or bad, like I'm such a special mom or I'm such a loser of a mom. It's not, that's not your identity. It's not in how you perform. It's not in how your children perform. It's not how they turn out. What matters most is who you are in Christ. It, it's, it's who, and it's Christ who died for us, 1 Thessalonians 5, that we might obtain salvation from Him. Life from Him. And so what do we do? We, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, we encourage one another with these words and we, so that we can build one another up. And we're going to do that now as we sing and then as we break bread together in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, would you encourage us uh, with these great reminders as we come and eat and drink, as we sing of the the fact that um, Jesus' death was defeated by you uh, through your own death and resurrection. And so as we sing these words to you and to one another, as we proclaim the Lord's death, until you return to one another by eating and drinking together. Father, use these things to encourage us today and that we might be built up for your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.